And uh, I'm going to pray that the words that we have sung will be true as we listen to God's words, Jesus' words, that we will meet Him. And that must be our expectation for this uh, is um, Jesus speaking to us through His words and by His Spirit that we will meet the living Christ. So let me pray. Lord, your truth cannot be changed. It searches everything, my secrets and my desires. Your word is like a hammer and a fire. It breaks, it purifies. So let your Holy Spirit shine into my heart and teach me. Open up my eyes with truth to free me. Light to chase the lies. Lord Jesus, let us meet you in your word. Amen. Now, as some of you are here, I think for the first time today, let me take a moment to explain what we're doing on Sunday mornings. We're studying together one of the books in the Bible called Acts, and this book describes through eyewitness testimony what happened as the church of Jesus Christ began and was established. And the period of history was immediately after the death and the resurrection of Jesus and his return to glory, around 33 A.D., and that's where the events described in the book of Acts begin. Jesus Christ has returned to glory where he reigns as God's eternal and all-powerful king, carrying on his mission on the earth through his church on the earth. And it is the beginning of Christ's mission through his church that is described in the book of Acts. Now, why is it called Acts? Well, it is an abbreviation for the Acts of Jesus through his apostles. The apostles, Jesus' appointed representatives at the beginning of the church. The book of Acts was written by Luke, who also wrote Luke's gospel. And it's good to think of the two books together. Luke's gospel, volume 1 describing Jesus' life on earth, his death, his resurrection, and return to God. Luke, the author, describes his first volume as dealing with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the book of Acts, volume 2, describes what Jesus continues to do and teach through his church. Now, both volumes, Luke's gospel and Acts were written with an express purpose in mind. In Luke, the author's own words that we might have certainty. Certainty about what happened when Jesus lived and died and rose and returned to God. Certainty about what happened when the church of Christ began and was established. Certainty about what we should expect in the church in any generation. And certainty, too, 
And this is so very important about what Jesus and the apostles taught. Certainty as to what the authentic message of Jesus is. And that matters so much because their teaching is authoritative teaching. It is important we have certainty as to what Jesus said through his apostles. Now, that's what the book of Acts is about. And on Sunday mornings, we're working through it, taking a section at a time. Rog and I are uh, teaching it on Sundays. Our job is to explain it and apply it as clearly as we can. But remember, these are Jesus' words through his apostles. Our job is to explain and apply them. But they're not our words. They're Jesus' words. And uh, alongside Sundays, we're studying it in our small groups. Now, the section we are in, and you'll see these scribbles on the back of the service sheet. I hope. Yes, they are. Is from chapter 2. If you just turn to that in your Bibles, you'll find it on page 911. The section we're in is a big one from chapter 242 to chapter 4, verse 31. And on the sheet there, you'll see what the kind of big idea is in the section. So if you had to pick uh, one sentence to describe what it says, it's that, that salvation is found only in the name of the risen King Jesus. Therefore, to the church, not least this local church, Chalmers, to every Christian, keep witnessing about him. However hard it gets, and you will be helped or emboldened by the Spirit of Jesus. Now, we've taken that in two parts. Last week, part one, chapter 2, 42 to the end of chapter 3, and it is the first half of that statement, salvation is found only in the name of Jesus. And today, chapter 4, verses 1 to 31, keep witnessing about him despite opposition emboldened by uh, the Spirit. Now, if you put these two things together, salvation is only found in the name of Jesus. So keep witnessing about him despite opposition emboldened by the Spirit. And what comes between these two things is a kind of set of questions. Why and how can I when it gets difficult and hard? And why is it hard? And what the words of Jesus will do for us is persuade us and help us and strengthen us and show us we can keep going and why we must. So let's read chapter 4, verses 1 to 31. Page 911. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. That's Peter and John, two of the apostles. Greatly annoyed, 
because they were teaching and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word, and the word is a kind of summary phrase for the authentic gospel about Jesus, but many who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000 believers. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes, that's the kind of Jewish religious establishment, gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the priestly family, all the big guns. When they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, this is referring to a miracle that Peter had performed or Jesus had performed through him to heal a man who was paralyzed. By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. That's pretty strong, isn't it? This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, the cornerstone, the stone that holds the whole structure up. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when the uh, people, that's the whole gathering, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them as evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to answer in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. 
When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, or prayed, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, and by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Well, what an extraordinary account that is. Now, I've suggested in the notes on the back of the service sheet five scenes in the events described. First, the opposition in chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. Now, Peter, one of the apostles, had been preaching that salvation is found only in the name of the risen King Jesus. That's what Peter's main point was in his sermon recorded at the beginning of chapter 4. Just have a look back. You'll see his sermon there at the beginning of chapter 4. The main point of his sermon is that salvation is found only in the name of the risen Jesus. And just to flesh out the context a bit more, he had performed an extraordinary miracle through his apostle Peter, the miracle recorded in chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, a paralyzed man miraculously healed, now able to walk, indeed leap and jump around, the miracle done in the name of Jesus. It is Jesus who does the miracle through his apostle. It is Jesus' power that heals the man. Peter is clear on that. It is in Jesus' name the man is healed. And that's the point Peter makes again in his sermon recorded in the second half of chapter 3. Jesus' name. And what happened with respect to the man spiritually points to what happened uh, physically, points to what happened spiritually. How is someone healed spiritually? Then and now. How are they saved? How do they receive salvation? How do they become a Christian? In the name of Jesus. Salvation or the forgiveness of sins, which is how someone becomes a Christian, is found only in the name of the risen King Jesus. And all the weight of Jesus' words in the early church and all the weight of the accreditation he bears down upon the apostles 
who write down these words is to give us confidence of that fact that salvation is found only in the name of the risen Jesus. Only in his name. And that claim led then and leads still to strong reactions. Now, the negative reaction here at the beginning of chapter 4, the opposition, Luke records, is from the Jewish religious leaders. They had refused to accept Jesus as their Savior and had been complicit with the Romans in having Jesus killed, as Peter reminds them. And now they are encountering these same religious leaders, Peter and John, speaking as Jesus' apostles, speaking about Jesus, about his death and resurrection, and that salvation is found only by faith in Jesus' name. And the apostles encounter exactly the same hostile reaction that Jesus faced. Now, notice the strength of their reaction. Verse 1, they came upon them. Literally, they rushed upon them. You can imagine that in your minds. Greatly annoyed, angry, indignant. They arrested them. They put them in custody. And how would you sum that up? Something like this. They just will not, under any circumstances, have these men speak about Jesus in this way. What were they annoyed about in particular? Well, verse 2, they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, it's not just that. It's the whole message that Peter was preaching, that Jesus died to forgive our sins, that he rose from the dead to give us life, that he reigns as God's king, and that salvation is found only by faith in his name. And they wanted to silence the messenger because he was saying these things. Just like they wanted to silence Jesus. Now, there's a connection that's vital for us to grasp. Opposition against Jesus is typically directed against those who speak about him. But the opposition is opposition against Jesus. Now, is opposition like this unique to the Jewish religious leaders back then, or can we generalize? Is there a wider application? Can we say that there are religious leaders today who are opposed to Jesus and his messengers? I'd love to kind of caveat that question or put a caution into it, but I think it's exactly the right question to ask. So can we say that there are religious leaders today who are opposed to Jesus and his messengers? Can we say that there are religious leaders in the so-called Christian church who are opposed to Jesus and his messengers? Well, surely not, because no religious leader, no person in my position, indeed no person who would call themselves a Christian, would ever say that they were opposed to Jesus. But are they not 
if they will not accept what Jesus says about himself, about his uniqueness for salvation? Are they not opposed to Jesus if they will not accept what the apostles say about Jesus? Are they not opposed to Jesus if they will not accept what those who seek to be faithful and obedient in saying what the apostles say about Jesus? Not accepting it is opposing it. And very often it is direct opposition against those who speak and teach about Jesus from the Bible, which is where we find the authentic message about Jesus. And what is it they oppose? A message that has the cross, the death, the resurrection of Jesus as central. A message that calls people to repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. A message that speaks about salvation only being found by faith in Jesus' name alone. And the book of Acts is there to put its hands on our shoulders and say, keep steady, keep strong, don't be surprised, don't be undermined by these questions. The world opposes the authentic message about Jesus and those who speak his authentic message. And the worldly church from day one has opposed the authentic message about Jesus and those who speak the authentic message. And we need to be real about that. Now, in other parts of the world, that opposition is much, much more intense. But in our own culture and in our own context, the opposition is becoming more intense. Opposition against Christians, particularly Christians committed to the authentic message about Jesus written for us in the Bible. It is out of step with the culture. It is out of step with the prevailing mood. And increasingly so. It is out of step with many parts of the visible church where there is no place for the authentic message about Jesus and those who speak his authentic message. And so Luke says in his book, if that is what you see in the world and in the worldly church, do not be surprised. But notice verse 4 tucked into this little sobering section. Many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of the men there is opposition to the authentic message, but there is also a saving response. Many who heard the word rejected it. Many who heard the word believed it. Let's read on from verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. As I said when I read it, all the big guns. Religious gatherings, religious courts can be very threatening places. 
and when they had set them in the middle, as if they were in the dock in the middle of this assembled gathering, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, picture this in your minds. Where does it look like or feel like the power is in that room? With the big guns, no doubt dressed to convey their power. And these two uneducated, ordinary men, by what power or by what name do you say these things? And there is a picture of how it always is. Always is. When an individual Christian believer, faithfully speaking, the authentic message of Jesus is opposed, they will always look weak and always feel weak. And those who oppose them will always look strong. Their arguments will be sophisticated and clear and sharp and persuasive. The questions they ask, it never looks like or hardly ever looks like the gospel or the authentic message of Jesus will prevail or will persuade until the Holy Spirit that lives within the believer speaks the words of Jesus and that comes upon a conversation or on a room or in a church an awareness that there is an authority because these are Jesus' words. Let me encourage you in your own evangelism that you will never, ever, ever think that you have the words or the answers to stand up against the questions you will be asked. Now, Peter's response, verses 8 to 12. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and the elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Isn't that a great line he tucks in? If you are actually going to ask us and criticize this kind of stuff, let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. He just tucks in Nazareth. Jesus, remember, came from Nazareth, that tiny little town. God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. What a wonderful answer. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name. What a wonderful answer, but what a dangerous answer. What a strong, bold, dangerous, stupid answer. What a stupid answer. Why didn't he say, look, come on, let's just find a middle ground. Let's just find a way to accommodate our diverse views. For we are one church. Imagine if in the history of the church, and don't default to the answer, God would have just used somebody else. Maybe he would have. Imagine in the history of the church if Peter and the other apostles had said, come on, let's gather round, for we are a broad church. Now, what is Peter saying? Verses 9 to 10, it is by the name of Jesus Christ that the man had been healed. 
verses 10b to 11. He is alive, Jesus, and in the place of authority. They quote from Psalm 118, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. Jesus is the cornerstone in God's building, the one on whom God's purposes are built. He is central to God's saving purposes. And point three of his sermon, verse 12, he is the unique savior. There is salvation in no one else but him. Now, why does Peter say this? Or let me just... uh, crystallize it. Why does Peter say there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which must be saved? Why is it that a Christian minister would say that in the heat? Or why is it more particularly that you would say that in a conversation? Why would you hold your ground on that? Why does Peter say it? Well, because he believes it. Why does he believe it? Because he is totally convinced that it's true. He is in no doubt that salvation is found in Christ alone because he is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we need to understand what that means in verse 8. It's not that he's given here a fresh outpouring or anointing of the Holy Spirit. I don't think it means that here. He has already been filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person, the living Jesus indwelling us. Peter spoke this way because he is someone who has been filled with the Holy Spirit. That is who he is as a Christian. That is what it means to be a Christian Jesus Christ within you, speaking out. When you and I become Christians, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that filled Peter, the Spirit of the living Jesus. One of the feedback emails from the events week this week, one of the guys who's joining the church tonight, being baptized, taking his friends along. Maybe you're one of the friends here who he took along to the events week. Why did he do that? Because he is convinced. How is he convinced? Because the Holy Spirit of Jesus lives within him. And that is a stronger answer than he read the book of Acts and was persuaded that it's true. That is true. But the certainty you will have, whether it's certainty as you face death, or the certainty you will have as you face opposition and speak, is because Jesus Christ, who never bottled it, lives in you by His Spirit. So never seek to learn Peter's answers by rote. Never seek to aspire to His boldness 
nearly as much as you humbly rely on the Lord Jesus who lives in you by his Spirit, who has filled you with his Spirit to enable you to speak or more accurately to speak through you. So don't reach for your book of answers. Take a moment to bow your head and say, please, Lord Jesus, will you speak through me? Now, verses 13 to 22, the opposition continues. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Uh, It astonished them. Isn't that striking? They were astonished. It reminded them they had been with Jesus. It confronted them with a hard evidence. The man who had been healed was standing there beside them, and it silenced them. They had nothing to say in opposition. It's almost as if they were persuaded, but they're not. They may have nothing to say. Their opposition may have been irrational in light of the evidence before them, but they are still implacably opposed. Silence rarely means belief. After Peter and John had been commanded to leave the religious council, they confer, what shall we do with these men? Basically, they say, we'll threaten them. Let's send them a scary letter with all our names at the top, with our letterhead, and say, don't you mess with us. There's a timeless tactic. Or in the realm of just an ordinary punter who shares the gospel. Let's just, let's just go silent on our friendship. It is almost though that they are constrained in this impossible situation to know what to do. And if you can see behind that, uh, God's hand pulling the strings, well, I think that's uh, accurate. Nothing in the end can stop the progress of the gospel. Uh, And Peter's statement in verse 19 is unanswerable. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and uh, heard. There's a text to ponder as Christians. Who do we listen to? And God who says speak or those who oppose us and say don't speak? Who do we listen to? Now the church's response, verses 22 to 30, um, it's almost as if Luke the author anticipates the reaction of Christians like us or like me reading this So the reaction at this point might be something like this. Well, I just cannot see or cannot think of myself. This is what I wrote down, I would think. I can't think of myself ever having that kind of boldness to speak the gospel in truth. Or as a church, look, Peter, we're just not wired that way as a church to be bold in our evangelism and witness. It's not the kind of church we are. We're a training church, didn't you know? We train evangelists. But we're not that kind of church. 
Do we think that? Yes. Do we? Or is it that we just lack courage and confidence and feel weak? I expect many of us do. That's a good reason for our reticence and evangelism, but let's not make it my excuse. So the first thing Peter and John do when they are released is to find their friends and explain what's happened and pray. Verse 24, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. That's a quotation from Psalm 2, the royal psalm of Christ. And they recall how the psalm was fulfilled in Jesus. Verse 27, for truly in this city, Jerusalem, a stone's throw from here. They were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, to do whatever your hand and your plan are predestined to take place. And what are they doing when they pray? They are praying to God, focusing on his sovereignty, his control, his power, and their prayers are sustained by Scripture. And Scripture says there will be opposition against the anointed one, Jesus, and his message. And so they are not surprised. Their minds are steadied at what is happening before their very eyes. And as they pray in this way, sustained by Scripture, so they are moved to ask in prayer, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Notice they do not ask for the opposition to be removed. They ask for boldness to continue speaking the word. It's not wrong to ask for opposition to be removed. But our first priority is to ask for boldness to speak. Scripture tells us to expect opposition. Scripture tells us that opposition is not taken away. Scripture tells us that opposition is often the means of advancing the gospel. And so we are to pray for the Lord's help to continue to speak His Word with all boldness. Prayer is not in any way a simple equation. But it does seem the more that we pray, the more answers there are to prayer. Not by the length of our prayers, not by the words that we use but a mindset and a heart set that prays to God in a biblically informed way, appealing to his sovereignty, asking for his help, and asking for the progress of the gospel. And finally, God answers their prayer. Verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. He answers their prayer dramatically. God communicates his sovereignty in powerful, even frightening ways. Now, I don't think we should expect the same that this room were to be shaken. I don't think we should expect that. This is the first moment in the history of the Church of Christ where opposition nearly took out the apostles. So God shakes the room. 
just to remind them that he is on his throne. Now, we shouldn't expect that to happen, but let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. You should expect this morning the empowerment and enabling of the Holy Spirit to enable you to speak the Word of God for another week, another year, with boldness. Expect it. Ask for it. Open your mouth. And you will find that Jesus' words are given you to speak the gospel. Now as we pray at the end of this talk, let's come up above the trees and begin to see the bigger picture. Opposition is normal, so expect it. Respond to it biblically and prayerfully. Expect opposition to result in the gospel advancing. We could add a fourth. Open your mouth and speak about Jesus. And you will find that he gives you the words to say. And don't believe me. I need to believe like you need to believe in Jesus. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the words of Jesus Christ given to his apostles to encourage us and to give us certainty. We prayed that you would open our eyes with truth to set us free, with light to chase the lies. We prayed, Lord Jesus, that you would meet us in your word. And we thank you that once again you have. And pray that it will not leave us unaffected, but that it will give us certainty and encouragement to keep on speaking about Jesus. In his name and for his sake. Amen.